It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast brought to you by our great friends at Alumni Hall. Make sure to stop in today, guys. Get the summer gear while you can. Polos, t-shirts, hats, whatever you need. They've got it because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. But all right, guys, you know the drill. I am your host, Tyler. And well, guys and gals, The June recruiting deluge, it just won't slow down, man. It's just not slowing down at all. So here we are back on the recruiting beat today. But this episode is going to be a little bit different than the first one this week. It's not going to be totally dedicated to recruiting. The first half of the the episode, yes, we're going to talk some recruiting. But the second half of the episode, I'm actually really excited about. I am going to lead what will admittedly be an exercise in masochism as I run through some of the biggest what-ifs in Georgia football history. So brace yourselves. That's coming. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be something a little bit different than what we normally do here on this podcast. It's cool. It's nice to kind of switch things up a little bit here. But first on the agenda today has to be the news that Georgia commit Dylan Riola, not only the number one quarterback in the country, but the number one overall prospect in the nation, has finally officially transferred to Buford High School here in the great state of Georgia. And I say finally because this has been in the works for a while. I alluded to it a few weeks ago here on this podcast. So if you've been dialed in, this probably isn't all that big of a surprise for you. But still, It's big news regardless, right? And I think there are a couple of different angles that we need to explore this development from. I'm going to start with, I think, the most obvious place to start. Why? Why is Dylan Riola transferring from Arizona, from Pinnacle High School in Arizona, one of the powerhouse high schools in Arizona, to Buford High School, obviously like the powerhouse here in the state of Georgia. Why is he doing this right now, just a few short months before his senior season of high school? Because the why does matter, guys. You you see a lot of transfers in high school, and sometimes it's not always for the best reasons. It can be certainly be a red flag. So the why does matter. But fortunately for us here, this is not one of those red flag moments, like where this guy is just transferring because... He is a, a malcontent. He's having conflict with his coaches. He feels entitled. He's not getting the, the love he deserves. Or he and his family think they know more than the coaching staff. It's nothing like that. This is just a matter of eligibility. And no, before you freak out, it's not about grades. It's not that type of eligibility. 
The issue for Riola in Arizona at Pinnacle High School, where he was going to play this year, or he was slated to, to play his senior season of, of high school football, is that he was transferring from another school in Arizona. Arizona has some weird transfer rules, right? Different states have different transfer rules. And there is a very good chance that Riola was going to have to sit out for the first half of his senior season at Pinnacle High School, the first five games of the season. There was a ruling that that was going to indeed be the case. His family appealed that ruling, and we're certainly hopeful that it was going to work out and that he was going to be able to stay in Arizona, play at Pinnacle, and then just go to Georgia for his freshman year of college. But there was no guarantee that was going to happen. And the word that the family got was that the appeal would not be decided until August 15th. Well, that's a problem because most high school seasons, high school football seasons, kick off in mid to late August. In fact, Pinnacle's first game, I'm looking it up right here, was slated to be August 25th. So he was going to find out a week and a half before his team season started whether or not he would be able to play the first half of the season. And this is not just kind of like a whimsical decision the family made on the fly by the seat of their pants without any input from any other stakeholders. They did meet with the Pinnacle High School coaching staff. It's not like they just like completely screwed this this team and this coaching staff over. I know a lot of people, are, certainly rival fan bases, want to point that out and say, oh yeah, like Dylan Ryle is selfish. It's all about him. He's leaving his team out to dry. They met with the Pinnacle coaching staff. And the Pinnacles coaching staff told them, hey guys, look, this is, now this is all according to Dominic Ryle, okay, D- Dylan's father. And the Pinnacle coaching staff essentially told them like, hey, we think there's a really strong chance Dylan's going to miss some games this season. He's going to be suspended to open the season. And we're essentially like encouraging them like, look, the, the biggest thing here is Dylan's got to play. Like he's got to play, get some experience, more experience going into his college career at Georgia. And one of the reasons they, they, that they transferred to Pinnacle, really the reason that they transferred to Pinnacle High School is because Pinnacle is a powerhouse. Dylan would have faced higher level competition, which would help sharpen him for his college career. He would have gotten better coaching. That's why they went there. They went there so he could play, so he could play against the best competition in the state. Well, it started to look like that was there's a very realistic possibility that he would not get to play as many games as they felt like he needed to play to get that experience. So his family did what they felt was best for Dylan and his future. They picked up and they moved to the state of Georgia where he is already going to be playing college football starting in 2024 and are now just going to plant roots in the state of Georgia. And guys, his family was always going to move to Georgia with Dylan they did not want to be in the position of having to take a bunch of cross-country flights, red-eye flights, to and from games. They wanted to be there so they could go to all the games. They could be a supportive family. They could be around Dylan if he needs just like, you know, support outside of football and just to kind of keep the family together for the next couple of years. And fortunately for the Riola family, they are well off enough financially to be able to make this move a reality. His dad played in the NFL, played center for the uh, for the Lions with Matthew Stafford as a quarterback. That's why the Staffords and the Riolas are very close. No, his dad did not make Matthew Stafford quarterback money, but he made plenty of money playing in the NFL over the course of his career. And so his family's in a really good financial position. They're able to make this kind of move. So if you can do it financially, if you can pull it off, you can make it work. It's in the best interest of your son and his future. Why would you not do it? And the next part of this is why Buford? Because there's a lot of high schools in the state of Georgia. It's good high school football all around. Why Buford? Well, I mean, guys, let's go back to what I said about why he transferred to Pinnacle in Arizona. He's looking to play the best competition. 
This dude is not running from the competition. He's running towards the competition. He wants to sharpen his game before he gets to college. So that's why Buford, I mean, they're a powerhouse. They have the best coaching you're going to find in the state of Georgia. They play some of the best competition in the state of Georgia, play in the highest classification, one of the toughest regions in the state of Georgia. There will be a ton of talent for him to work with there. It's an hour-ish away from Athens. So all in all, it really just made too much sense. It made the most sense for him to transfer, not just to the state of Georgia, but to Buford High School. So that's the why. But what I think is more important for us as Georgia fans is what does this mean? Is it good for Georgia? Is it bad for Georgia? Like, what do we take away from this? Well, it's certainly not bad for Georgia to have this guy that's the number one player in the country that's committed to you right now. It's certainly not bad for you to have him an hour away from campus. That's, if anything, that's great news. So I do think this is really good news for us, for Georgia, for Georgia fans. And here's why. It's a couple reasons. Number one, I'll go back to the competition thing, all right? Riola had a really good sophomore year, but that was in Texas. They then transfer to a school in Arizona, Chandler in Arizona, and his junior year wasn't bad by any stretch of the imagination. He's still the number one overall recruit in the country, but his junior year, at least statistically, wasn't exactly what his sophomore year was when he played in Texas. At Burleson High School in Texas as a sophomore, he threw for 3,300 yards and 32 touchdowns in 12 games. In 2022, the next year in Arizona at Chandler, he only threw for 2,400 yards and 22 touchdowns, did complete 64% of his passes, but the numbers weren't there. There was a pretty significant drop-off from where he was as a sophomore, at least statistically, right? Different offense, different coaching staff, different teammates, all those things. So the family wasn't necessarily thrilled with that, and they didn't necessarily feel like he was getting the best development, so they want to transfer to Pinnacle, where he gets elite coaching, at least in terms of high school standards, and gets to play against better competition, right? That was the goal. Now, moving to Georgia and transferring to Buford, he is going to get the opportunity to play against even greater competition. Because guys, let's be real, state of Georgia, when it comes to high school football, is vastly superior to what you're going to find game in and game out in the state of Arizona. There are just far more high-profile players in the state of Georgia, like Power 5-level players in this state, than there are in Arizona. Those are just the facts. And when you play in the highest classification in one of the best regions in the state, in the metro Atlanta area, you are going to face a higher concentration of those elite players, those power five level prospects. So from that standpoint, as a Georgia guy, I'm very excited about this because he is going to have the opportunity to sharpen his skills the way that they were hoping he was going to be able to at Pinnacle. I think even more so here at Buford. You guys know the old cliche, iron sharpens iron, and that is what's going to happen here. Even in practice, he's going to go against some of the best players in not just the state, but some of the best players in the country. Edrick Houston is on that Buford defense, so when they're doing team drills and they're doing some one-versus-one stuff, like there's going to be some really high-level players on the defensive side of the ball, and that's just a practice. That's not even talking about the actual games, and you're playing teams like Mill Creek, and Collins Hill, and they've got a game against Mallard from Charlotte, which is a really, really big power in the state of North Carolina. So there's just a lot of competition during the season that he's going to face that's going to help him improve his game. It's going to help him raise his level of play. You are also going to get some high-level high school coaching. Now, is it college-level coaching? No. If these guys were college-level coaches, they'd probably be at the college level. Not necessarily. Sometimes these guys just want to coach at the high school level. Some of these guys could do it at the college level. But you are going to get some elite coaching at Buford High School, really more so than almost anywhere you're going to find in this state. If you want to move to Georgia to get closer to the, the university that you're going to go to, that you're committed to, if you're looking for the best coaching, like Buford makes a lot of sense, right? 
So from that standpoint, it's nothing but good news for Georgia because we're going to get a quarterback who's better prepared to potentially jump in right away and contend for that starting job as a true freshman going into the 2024 season. Dylan is already an advanced quarterback relative to the rest of the quarterbacks in the country coming out of high school right now, but this is just going to get him even more prepared to really make a legitimate run at that job, that quarterback job, as a true freshman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. But the benefits for Georgia, for us, for you and I as Georgia fans, don't stop there with the idea that Dylan's going to play against better competition and will better prepare him, will sharpen him to be ready to kind of make a run at that, at that quarterback job in 2024. It's more than just that. There's also a recruiting aspect to this. You really have to think about that, right? And one of the topics that I feel like we've talked about 38 different times over the past two years on this show, at least during the offseason when we don't have actual games to talk about, is the reality that we continue to have a difficult time pulling players, not just out of Buford High School specifically, but the Gwinnett County area in general. We continue to have issues. I'm not saying we don't land guys from Gwinnett County. Like We've got some players over the years from Gwinnett, but we're certainly missing on those guys at a far higher rate than we are hitting. And it's certainly disproportionate to the percentage that we're hitting on guys in other parts of the state of Georgia. And Buford High School in particular has been a school where we have had some issues really kind of getting a foothold. Having Riola there, I'm not going to say it's going to completely turn the tables, but it certainly does not hurt. It can start to lay the groundwork for us to start to turn Buford into maybe... I don't know. Can I say a pipeline? Like I think that's a little bit of a stretch right now when you consider what the history has been there, but it can start that process. It can lay the foundation for that to be something that could potentially be reality in the future. And it certainly helps us in the short term. Obviously, a guy like KJ Bolden, who we have been after very hard for a long time, and we are right there in his final group. It's probably going to be either us or Ohio State right now. It certainly helps with him. It doesn't hurt with Edric Houston, who is a five-star prospect in the state from the state of Georgia out of Buford High School in this class. Right now, Ohio State is the clear leader for him, but we haven't stopped recruiting him. He has come for visits with Riola there. Does that help a little bit? Sure. Now, is that going to be the decisive factor? I mean, probably not, but 
it doesn't hurt. It also helps with some of the big-time prospects in the 2025 class that are currently playing at Buford. Guy named Jaden Perlette, who's right now on our commit list. He's a, a top 40 player nationally. But, you know, there's a long way between now and signing day 2025. Things can change, right? Guys take other visits. They obviously are going to be recruited by other schools. Flips are always possible when they commit that early in advance. You never really know. So it'll certainly help with a guy like Perlette. There's another guy, a defensive back out of Buford right now, who is a top 75-ish player in the country, a guy named Devin Williams. It helps with a guy like that. So it certainly does help in the immediate future in this 2024 recruiting class and also the 2025 recruiting class. I think it could also potentially have an impact even further out in the future, again, if we can start to kind of get a few guys here in this class, maybe 2025, does it start to kind of build that pipeline to Georgia? Do we finally start to crack that Buford code to some degree? I, I can't sit here and say with a straight face like, yeah, it's definitely going to happen. But again, it doesn't hurt. It helps, if anything. And then also on the recruiting front, here's another aspect to this that I think you have to consider it makes it so much easier for Dylan to get to Athens every weekend on unofficial visits during the season. I think that is a very underrated aspect of this. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's going to help with Buford. Yeah, he's going to play against better competition. That's all great. But this guy, as your quarterback, is the leader of this class. That's usually how this works. Quarterbacks take on that role as the leader of the class. That's usually why they like to commit early. So you build the class around them, right? Hey, guys, come play with me. I'm, I'm the number one quarterback in the country, the number one player in the country. Let's go win some championships. Come play with me. Well, it's one thing to text guys and have these text chains. Like, that's cool. That is nice, I guess. But that is not the same as being on campus with these guys and building those relationships in person. It's just not the same. You guys understand that. It's just like, you know, having relationships with the people that you interact with on social media is not the same as the relationships you have with the people that you know in your life, in person, that you hang out with. It's not the same. It's just not the same type of connection. And Dylan was going to do his best to be here in Athens for the home games as much as he possibly could. But, you know, when you're playing high school football and you have games on Friday, it makes it very difficult, right? It, sometimes your bye weeks, you know, they they align with, with the Georgia schedule and you can make some visits, but it doesn't always work out that way. Now, playing in the state of Georgia, an hour or so away from, from Athens, he absolutely can make it to every single game if he wants to. And I have a very strong feeling that is exactly what he is going to do. If you look at what he's done this summer since he's committed, it certainly seems like this guy is all in on trying to help put together this 2024 recruiting class. He's made quite a few unofficial visits even after his commitment just to help recruit these guys. Coming to campus when all these guys are on their official visits, he's doing everything he can. But that's from Arizona. If you're an hour away from campus going to Buford High School, you can have even more of an impact because you can be there every single time these guys come on campus. Now, again, I caution you here. Raiola's involvement in the recruitment of all these different prospects is probably not going to be the decisive factor for most of these guys. But as I keep saying, it doesn't hurt. And again, being on campus with these guys in person is a very different animal than just recruit, than just texting them saying, hey, dude, like, come play with me. I hope you had a cool visit. Like, how was it? It's just different, man. It's different. But at the end of the day, I, I don't even see how you can possibly call this a negative in any way, shape, or form. I really don't. I, I don't think there's any drawbacks to this from a Georgia perspective. I know that, you know, I've heard some some people today, one of my buddies, one of the first things he said was like, man, that really sucks for the, for the guy whose job he's taking in Buford, like referring to the quarterback who's there right now. And yeah, I get that. I do empathize with that situation. 
But the thing with, with the Buford quarterback situation is the guy that was probably, based on my understanding, the guy that was going to be their starting quarterback this year was a transfer himself, coming from East Coweta. So Dylan's not really doing anything all that different than this guy. I think Langford's his last name. But I will say, if it was a guy that had grown up in the Buford feeder system, so if you guys aren't familiar with how Gwinnett County works, again, I'm a Gwinnett County kid. It's where I grew up my entire life. They have, they're literally, they don't do Pop Warner or anything like that. They have something called the GFL, the Gwinnett Football League. And one of the reasons, I truly believe, guys, I, this is what I grew up playing my entire life. From like eight, I started playing when I was six years old. And I was playing with the Brookwood feeder system. But I, I firmly believe, having seen it firsthand, up close and personal, having lived it, I personally believe one of the primary reasons why Gwinnett County has been and continues to be such a prominent force in Georgia high school football is the GFL, their little league program. Because every single school in the district, guys, every single school in the county, at least the major, well, it's been a while since I played. So, I mean, obviously I stopped playing little league football. What was my last year? 1999? Long time ago, things could have changed. But when I played, there weren't as many schools in Gwinnett County. Like, like Mill Creek wasn't a team. Uh, Mountain View wasn't a team. Okay. Those, there weren't teams. It was, what was this? Brookwood, it was Parkview, Loganville, uh, Collins Hill, Duluth, Decula, Buford. Burkmar, or as they were called in the GFL, they were called Lilburn. There was Central Gwinnett, North Gwinnett, Shiloh, South Gwinnett, and I'm probably missing a school here there, but those are the schools. Obviously, Gwinnett County has grown tremendously since I graduated high school in 2004, and there are a bunch of new schools. So I don't know if they've had to split it into different leagues. I, I don't know how they've done it, but the fact remains, each school has a team. So like Brookwood would have a six-year-old team, a seven-year-old team, an eight-year-old team, a nine-year-old team, a 10-year-old team, all the way up to like an eighth grade team. And yes, I know some of these schools are huge, right? So you have a lot of players in one place. How can you fit all these guys on one team and they all get a chance to play? You break it into multiple teams. So Brookwood might have like three nine-year-old teams and be like, nine-year-old A team, nine-year-old B team, nine-year-old C team, like whatever. And it's not like ABC doesn't mean like best, second best, third best. It's just like they divide the teams up that way. Like when I was growing up, there were two Brookwood teams. There was my team, and there was another Brookwood team. I knew all the other kids on the other team, but they weren't on my team. They were coached by a whole separate set of coaches. But anyway, the, the reason I think that the GFL is is a big reason for why these Gwinnett County schools are so good is that those coaches that coach the little league teams, the seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, whatever level team, they are actually basically coached up by the high school coaches. Like my dad was one of my coaches and he would go every summer before the season, he would go to Brookwood High School and they would have classes essentially where the Brookwood High School coaches would be teaching all the little league coaches, hey, here's how we do things. Here are the plays we want rerun. Here's the terminology that we use so that it kind of makes for a seamless transition once those kids who played little league in that school's feeder system all the way up to high school, they are already very familiar with the plays and the language that the school uses, the way they coach things up. There's not as much of a learning curve. It makes for a much more seamless transition. And the coaches also know, the high school coaches have an idea of who these players are. And so when they get to when they get to them in high school, like they already know these kids. They've been scouting them out. They've been watching them. They've been talking to all these coaches, these little league coaches. And it just makes everything more seamless and just has all these kids way better prepared to play at a high level when they enter high school, especially early on in high school, than you see in other districts around the state. And there are other districts that have kind of copied the GFL and what Gwinnett County has done, and for good reason. But anyway, my whole point of this is I can imagine myself, I was not a quarterback, but let's say that I was. And let's say that I grew up, which I did, in the Brookwood system. And my entire life, all I'd ever dreamed of was playing quarterback for Brookwood High School. 
And by the time I got there and I waited my turn, it's my senior year and it's ready to be my turn to play. And all of a sudden, this hotshot number one recruit in the country from Arizona flies in and takes my job. I would have been absolutely gutted. And you can say, yeah, we can just transfer schools. Man, like you grew up your entire life. All of your friends, your entire life are at this school. You got to move your senior year because some dude moved in. And Buford's like, wait, it's a city school. So you just go to the county school that you're zoned for there. But fortunately, that does not appear to be the case. Because if it was, I would be heartbroken for that kid. Because like, I'm just imagining myself, if that had happened to me, I would have been absolutely devastated. So I get that. I get that line of thinking. But again, that just does not appear to be the case here with Buford right now. Someone with more direct knowledge of what's going on at Buford High School. I'm sure we have some listeners that have kids at Buford High School. You, if I'm wrong, please hit me up and let me know. I could very well be wrong, but that's my understanding of the situation as of right now. And the last part of this Ryola transfer to Buford that I, that I want to address here on the podcast, and I kind of already have, but let's just circle back to it and make sure we, we hit on it full force here. Of course, as soon as this transfer was announced today, officially announced today, all the haters came out of the woodwork and were doing their very best to paint Ryola as this selfish prima donna with a spotty past and character issues related to the number of times that he has transferred throughout his high school career. It's low-hanging fruit. So, of course, everyone out there who hates Georgia, which right now is pretty much everyone, they are very eagerly going to jump all over this. But I will tell you guys, this is just me. This is my opinion based off what I know the situation. I have absolutely zero concerns regarding Dylan Riola's character. I have heard nothing but glowing things about this guy off the field. Obviously, on the field, we know what this kid is. But off the field, I've heard nothing but fantastic things about him. Him and his family, for that matter. I will acknowledge there are situations in recruiting where if you see a player transferring multiple times during his high school career, that it's a red flag. And you might really want to pay attention to that because that could be insightful into the type of player you're getting. Maybe it's not the kind of guy that you want to bring into your program. Maybe not the kind of guy you want in your locker room. Not a guy that's a good fit for your culture. Zach Evans, if you remember that name from a couple years ago, he's the first example that comes to my mind. But Dylan Riola is not one of those kids. If you look at his transfers, every single one of them is very easily explained. They all have extenuating circumstances. So he started in Texas. He played his sophomore year in Texas because that's where his sister went to school. His sister went to school in TCU. She was a volleyball player. So his family, as they have done with Dylan, they moved to Texas to be near their daughter. Then they moved to Arizona, and I, I, I'll be honest, I don't have the full story on why they moved to Arizona. Maybe it's just where they wanted to live. I don't know. They moved out to Arizona. They were at Chandler High School. As I mentioned earlier, his numbers at Chandler last season, during his junior season, were not what they were in Texas at Burleson High School when he was a sophomore, but there's more to that story. I don't know the entire story there at Chandler. I'm not going to pretend that I do because I really don't. Here's what I do know. Here's what I have heard is that Riola is not the only player that transferred from Chandler following last season. In fact, there was one of the papers, I can't remember the paper, but I read an article in one of the Arizona papers that detailed how upwards near 20 players, we're not talking about a guy here, a guy there, two or three guys, we're talking like 20 players potentially, according to that article that I read in in an Arizona newspaper, that have transferred from Chandler after last season. So I don't know exactly what was going on behind the scenes and what's going on there, but clearly appears that it's something more than just a Dylan Riola thing. And then, of course, as I've already laid out earlier in the show, we know why he moved from Pinnacle High School, where he was going to play this year, to Buford. He simply did not want to have to sit out potentially half of the season. 
and him having to potentially sit out for half the season had nothing to do with behavior, conduct, grades, anything like that. It was solely related to an Arizona rule when it comes to transfers from one school to another and him having to potentially sit out for half the season. So from where I'm sitting here, again, just me, you guys draw your own conclusions, but just me here, I don't have any issues whatsoever with any of the times that Raiola has transferred. They all make sense to me. They all check out. We're not talking about conduct issues. We're not talking about conflict with coaches. We're not talking about bad attitudes, anything like that. Just extenuating circumstances that have caused him to move a couple of times during high school. So to answer those concerns, no, I have absolutely no concerns whatsoever when it comes to Dylan Raiola's character. All right, guys, enough recruiting talk today. Let's move on a little bit here, and I'm excited about this. Let's transition into the biggest what-ifs in Georgia history. And let me give you a little background on where I got this idea, why we're doing it today. So some of you probably saw the same thing I saw, but I saw a tweet earlier in the week. I think it was from On3, I want to say. But I saw this tweet, and it the tweet essentially asked, like, what are the biggest what-ifs in college football history? And, of course, as a dyed-in-the-wool Georgia guy, I started to think to myself, huh, what are the biggest what-ifs in Georgia football history? So I figured we could kind of put our spin on the original question and, and Georgia-fy it a little bit, if you will. It's funny, though. Of course, as a long-suffering Georgia fan prior to the last two seasons— most of the what-ifs that came to my mind that I came up with are of the heartbreak variety because, I mean, let's be real, guys, all of those heartbreaks over all those years, you guys know it as well as I do, they are seared permanently into my psyche. I can't get away from them no matter how much I want to. So trigger warning here ahead of time. There are going to be a couple of things I'm going to talk about here the back half of the episode that might bring back some very bad memories, some very painful memories. And trust me, it's painful for me to even talk about some of these, but I'm going to do my best here. But guys, I've got a ton of these. Like I just went down a rabbit hole of like all these what ifs in my lifetime as a Georgia fan. So I guess I should also say that this is, I mean, I guess I'm calling it like the biggest what ifs in Georgia football history. I guess that's a little bit of a misnomer. This is going to be more of the biggest what ifs in Georgia football history since my time as like a consciously aware fan of what's going on with Georgia football, which let's say it's about the past 25 years or so. So there are some limitations here. I put this out on Twitter earlier in the week. I was curious to see what you guys came up with and to see if you had some of the same thoughts that I had. And there were some awesome ones. And I'm actually going to bring up some of the uh, some of the what ifs that you guys brought up on social media that maybe I wasn't thinking of. But there are a couple of you that went way back, like into the 80s, maybe even the 70s for some of you guys. And I'm not saying that those aren't credible at all. I'm sure they absolutely are. And doing some research, yeah, sure they are. But like that, I wasn't, I wasn't really around for some of those things. Like 1980s, like the early 1980s, I wasn't born then. I was born in 1985. So I'm sticking to my wheelhouse. I'm sticking to what I know. I'm just putting that out there. I want to make sure we, uh, we just clear that air before we dive in here. But I do have a lot. I have a lot of them. In fact, I got so many here, I might have to make this like a two-parter, maybe, because I've got so many. I want to do these justice, and I just, I mean, I can list all of them that I've got on my my, uh, notes here, but I don't know if we'll be able to do them justice in like one half of one episode. So maybe we'll break this into two parts. We'll see what we get through here today. But I do have a lot. I I do want to start, though, with the most obvious ones just kind of get them out of the way, because I do have some that I'm actually excited to talk about. Well, a lot of them are very painful, but 
I uh, man, it's just some of these spring back so many memories, things that I'd like really tried to repress, but they came kind of flooding back doing this exercise. But I want to start with the big ones, and I think the most obvious one. A lot of you mentioned this one when I put the question out on, on Twitter. The biggest one's got to be the 2012 SEC Championship, right? And if you guys don't remember that, I think you do. If you were alive, you have to remember that. How could you possibly not? Like we were <laughs> one play, 15 seconds away from winning a national championship, and I, I don't say that to exaggerate. Like legitimately, we were about 15 seconds from winning a national championship because if we beat Alabama in the 2012 SEC title game, come on, guys, we know we were gonna go on and we were gonna beat Notre Dame because Notre Dame just they couldn't handle that. I mean, it was Georgia and Alabama, two best teams in the country. Tell me if you've heard that before. And uh, we fell ever so agonizingly short, which we have felt many times in the past 10 to 15 years. But just to, just to recap it, just to bring back all those horrible, terrible, painful memories, you got to share this with me, guys. I can't be the only one who's feeling these pains, right? So just for memory's sake, you guys know what happened. So we get the ball back. I think it was like 45 seconds left. We had no timeouts. We are down by four, 32-28, so we need a touchdown. We get the ball back. I think it was on our own 28-yard line, but somewhere around there. It was, it was short of the 30-yard line, and um, it looked bleak. I mean, I was there, guys. I was in the Georgia Dome, RIP, RIP Georgia Dome, but was there for that game, and I, I mean, I vividly remember. I remember my emotions. I remember after Alabama scores with just a little over three minutes left, if I remember correctly, to go up by four. Uh, I wasn't devastated yet. I mean, it was hurting there, but I was like, okay, we got a shot, get the ball back, but we go three and out, and we, we punt the ball, I mean, I think they got the ball back like two minutes left, a little bit more than two minutes, and at that time, I'm like, man, they're, they're going to get a first down, they're going to run the clock out, but say, hey, we stop them, right, we stop them, we get the ball back, actually, I'm looking it up here right now, I'm pulling it up, we got the ball back with a minute and two seconds left on that final drive, and let's see where we were, yeah, we well, no, we were on the 24-yard line, not the 28-yard line, all right, so 24-yard line, and uh, first and 10, Minute, two seconds left, zero timeouts, right? So at that point, I'm like, yeah, I guess there's a chance, but no timeouts, man. I don't know if we got to get a touchdown. Like, this is Alabama we're talking about. Like, I don't know, man. We'll see. Uh, but then, hey, Aaron Murray pulls off the miraculous, man. Like, we go down the field. We get the ball to the Alabama eight-yard line. Murray hit Artie Lynch up the middle of the field, up the seam, and he rumbles down, big old Artie rumbles down to the Alabama eight-yard line, goes down, clock stops for a first down, with 15 seconds left, and this is where things go awry. We did not spike the football. You guys know that, right? This this was certainly like the most popular response I got when I put this out on Twitter, and I think you guys are right. It's the most obvious one, right? We don't spike the ball. We snap it. We end up snapping the ball with like 11-ish seconds left. Murray is trying to throw a back shoulder fade to Malcolm Mitchell into the boundary with single coverage. And man, I think we had it. I think we had. I mean, I've watched it a million times. I, it took me about two or three years where I could actually watch it. Now I've gone back and watched it. I don't know. It's like, again, I, I guess sometimes I enjoy these exercises in masochism, but I've watched it and I just, I feel like it was there, man. Murray was a fantastic back shoulder guy. Um, Malcolm had great hands. I feel like it was there. I had a shot. Certainly had a shot, but it was not to be. CJ Mosley, I've been a linebacker, tips the ball. We all know what happens next. Falls into. into Chris Conley's hands on about the five-yard line, and he falls down. We have no timeouts. He's short of the, there's no first down because it's first and goal. Short of the goal line, time expires, clock runs out. Alabama wins, goes to face Notre Dame in the BCS National Championship game, and, of course, they steamroll Notre Dame, which is essentially what we would have done as well. What if, what if, guys, what if we spike the ball? 
What if we spike the ball? So we got 15 seconds left when the clock stops for the first down. We get the ball to the eight-yard line off Lynch's reception. If we snap and spike it, what? It's about two seconds. So we've got 13 seconds on the clock. It would have been close. Even if we had spiked it there, it would have been close. I can't say with 100% certainty. Because actually, I went, before I record this episode, I went back and watched it again a couple of times. Watched that one play. And I can't say with 100% certainty that we would have had enough time to get lined up and spike the ball again and have one more shot at the end zone from the five-yard line. I can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt that we would have been able to do that. But what I can say is there certainly was a shot. If we get guys lined up enough, we had a shot to get to the line of scrimmage and spike it with maybe one or two seconds left to give us that one final shot at the end zone from the five-yard line. I will defend Rick and Bobo a little bit here. I know no one wants to hear this, but I'm just trying to be as objective as I possibly can about it. And trust me, I've thought about this many, 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 many times over the past, what, 10 plus years. I don't think the decision to go ahead and hurry up and snap the ball without spiking it was an indefensible decision. I understand the thought process there. The thought process is pretty simple. You try to hurry up to the ball while Alabama's out of sorts, trying to figure out what defense they're in, get them kind of moving around. When there's chaos like that, guys tend to like lose their minds a little bit. Maybe they blow assignments. They forget who they're supposed to cover. Things happen. I understand that thought process. And I don't think that's indefensible. I think you can defend that. Obviously, you know, the, the ultimate way to measure these things is did it work out? And obviously, no, it did not work out. And you can disagree with the decision, which I do. I do in retrospect. I would have spiked it there. But I also don't think it's like the most idiotic thing in the history of the world. Like, what are you possibly doing here? Like, I I get what they were doing. I just don't think it was the right decision there. And what they were thinking, again, another part of this is like they're thinking, okay, we're throwing the ball to the end zone. We're We're going to go with a quick hitter to make sure Aaron doesn't get sacked. And even the ball falls incomplete, we're throwing the ball in the end zone. We got another shot, maybe two plays potentially, depending on how quick these plays get off. To, to take shots at the end zone. I, I get what they're thinking. Again, I don't think that's indefensible. It's really hard to predict like, oh yeah, CJ Moses is going to get his hand up on the ball and deflect it and it's not going to fall to the ground. It's going to fall into one of our receiver's hands who's going to catch it. Because I mean, I don't want to blame Conley, guys. Like you, As a receiver in that moment, like what do you do? Like The ball gets tipped and things are crazy. It's chaotic for you too and the ball falls in your hands and you just you catch it. Like Obviously, we would love for him to just drop the football and you have one more shot. But, I mean, it's it's tough to do that in the moment there. But it's just so hard for, to predict that something like that would happen. Like, how do you predict that? What are the odds that something like that is going to happen? Now, we know it happened, so the odds weren't zero. But, I mean, the odds are minuscule that that would be what ends up happening on that play. So, I, I don't think it was crazy. I don't think it was indefensible to make that decision. Again, I just, obviously, in retrospect, with it not working out, I disagree with it. And if we would have spiked it, we probably would have had two shots there, even if Conley ends up catching the ball. And let's just say, for argument's sake, he would have. But let's dive a little bit deeper beyond just the play itself. If we score there, let's say we spike the ball and we end up scoring a touchdown on that on that drive to cap the game, and we beat Alabama, we win the SEC title, we go to play Notre Dame in the BCS National Championship game, and we beat the Fighting Irish, and we're national champions. Think about the reverberations that would have had into the future and how it could have changed where we are right now. If Mark Rick wins that national title in 2012, does he get fired three years later? I don't think there is a snowball's chance in hell that he does. Because what was the knock on Rick, right? It's like, hey man, this guy wins a lot of games. He's really consistent. He's won a couple of SEC titles. He's put us in the title game a couple of different times, even when we didn't win it. But he couldn't get over the hump. He couldn't get over the hump as in like the national title. He couldn't get over Alabama. He couldn't beat those teams. 
The knock was we had plateaued under Mark Richt, and we wanted to bring a guy in who could take us over that hump and get us to the next level to win a national title, which we know ultimately ended up happening. But what if Rick wins that title in 2012? Think about this, guys. So in 2013, we were awesome, right? Now, the final record ended up being 8-5, and five, but you got Todd Gurley, you got Aaron Murray. We just were beset by injuries that season. You know, Gurley gets hurt. Murray goes down against Kentucky for the season with his ACL tear. Uh, we had a mash unit at running back. I remember I, the Vanderbilt game, like, dear God, we lost that game. I That was one of the worst games that I've ever been to. And uh, yeah, that one sucked. But remember, like we had Brendan Douglas and, and J.J. Green at running back. I mean, <laughs> our guys, Marshall, Gurley, like they, they weren't playing. They were hurt. And Murray was trying to do everything he possibly could. He gets hurt later in the season. But I think we, like if we had stayed healthy that season, which we didn't, it's football, it happens. But if we had stayed healthy, I think we were like potentially national championship good. I know we lost to Clemson to open that season, but that was a, that was a closely fought game in the wannabe Death Valley. It's a close game, right? Well, even if we lose that game, we come back, we have huge games at home against South Carolina and LSU. We win both those football games. We're rolling. We've got momentum. And then the injuries hit. So even, you know, even though we end up 8-5, and five, even the season ended up that way, if you win a national title in 2012, like no, one, no one's really going to care all that much about that. And you follow up in 2014 and 2015 with 10-win seasons. Like, are you going to fire a coach who won a national championship three years ago when he just put together back-to-back 10-win seasons. There is no way in hell that is going to happen. Mark Rick might very well still be our coach right now. At the very least, we can say it probably wouldn't be Kirby Smarters. Kirby would not have waited on our job as long as he would have had to have waited if Rick stayed on and won that national title in 2012. You know, I know Mark has got some health issues right now, so he probably would have moved on like maybe a couple years ago if he'd won that title in 2012. But Kirby would have taken another head coaching job. Whether you know South Carolina was after him hard, you know Auburn, all the issues they've had. He had previously interviewed for the Auburn job, and that's, that brings another one. If like, what if Kirby had taken the the Auburn job? We'll get to that one later on. Or what if Auburn had, had offered him the job? Which like, what are you doing, idiots? Of course, hire Kirby Smart. Insanity. What are you doing? You know, so like, where would we be right now? If you win the title in 2012, do we win another title though? I don't know. Like maybe Rick is able to parlay that national title into more recruiting success, and then he gets another one. You know, like maybe that's how the story goes. You, you don't know. It's, just, it's a massive what if in Georgia football history. What I can say is I'm pretty confident Kirby Smart would not be our head coach right now. I'm fairly confident that we would not have won back-to-back titles in 20, 2021 and 2022. But that's a huge one. That is a really big one. Probably the biggest one that I can think of that comes to mind right off the top of my head, because I mean, it could completely change the trajectory of Mark Rick's career of the Georgia program and ultimately change where Kirby Smart ended up. And let's say if Kirby Smart ends up at, at South Carolina, does he all of, a turn, all of a sudden turn South Carolina into a power? Does he do the impossible and take a program that's won one, one conference championship, not, no SEC championships, but one single conference championship in the history of his program? Does he turn them into a national power? Maybe, possibly, because Kirby is that dude. Auburn, you put Kirby at Auburn? And Kirby went lights out at Auburn. How does that change? Like, these are teams that we would have to play on an annual basis. So I think that's a massive what if, not just for Georgia football history, but really like the recent history of college football in general. That really could have changed the landscape of things if that play against Bama in the Georgia Dome in 2012 hadn't gone down the way that went down and made me collapse on the soiled, dirty, disgusting, nasty floor of the Georgia Dome. Very sticky. I remember that vividly. Just stickiness, but I didn't care, man. I was I was a broken man at that point. But anyway, that's got to be the top of the list there, I think. Now, the next one that kind of came to mind for me, and this maybe this didn't come to mind for all of you guys right away, but it did for me. And, and some of you mentioned this when I put this question out on, on Twitter. But what if, guys, what if we had never offered Stetson Bennett a scholarship 
out of JUCO. So remember, he was here in 2017, right? Goes to Jones Community College. Does fairly well, well enough to get some scholarship offers. He was all set to go to Louisiana with Billy Napier, with some bet Billy. But Kirby Smart, the last second, throws out that scholarship offer, brings Stetson Bennett back to Athens. What if that never happened? What if? Like, what happens there? So we don't bring Stetson back. In 2020, we start Dewan Mathis. Well, Dewan Mathis, we know how that how that went down. If there's no Stetson Bennett to bring off the bench, we lose to Arkansas, right? Like, we do. We, we, let's be real. We lose to Arkansas week one of 2020, a team that quite literally, guys, had not won a conference game in over two years. They went 0-8 in 2018 and 0-8 in 2019 in SEC play. And we were going to lose to them the first week of the 2020 season. I know it's COVID and, you know, whatever, but I don't care, man. That's humiliating. That's embarrassing. That simply cannot happen. And it almost did, and it would have if we didn't have Stetson Bennett step in and save the day. Now, we know 2020 didn't end up turning out the way we all wanted it to, but the story does not stop there. If Stetson Bennett does not come back to Georgia, if Kirby Smart does not extend that scholarship offer to bring him back to Athens, what happens in 2021? when JT Daniels goes down. We are all really excited about Carson Beck right now. At least I am. I don't want to speak for you guys. I think you're excited. I know I'm excited about him. I think he's going to have a monster year for us. But I don't know if I felt that way in 2021. Redshirt freshman Carson Beck, as good as we were really everywhere else on the team, was he good enough at that point to lead us to a national title? To beat Alabama? Maybe, maybe, but... We don't know that for sure, man. In fact, I would say it's probably more likely than not that he wasn't ready to be that guy. So if we don't win in 2021, do we win it in 2022? Again, no Stetson Bennett. Carson Beck, Carson looked good in in his opportunities last season, but we don't know if he would have been ready to lead us to national championship last year. I think he would have been more equipped as the guy in 2022, especially if he would have played a ton of snaps in 2021. But would he have been as good as Stetson was last year? And we needed Stetson more last year, guys. Like, we know this. Our defense was still really good. It wasn't, like, 2021 level good. It wasn't that dominant. We needed a little bit more from our offense last season, which we spent the entire offseason last year saying we would. And you know what? We got it. Stetson Bennett delivered. I think Carson Beck would have been really good last year for us, but would he have been Stetson Bennett good? And without him being Stetson Bennett good, would we have won the national championship? I know that we blew out a lot of teams. There were some close games, though, man. I mean, the Peach Bowl? Does Carson Beck pull that off? I don't know, maybe, possibly, hopefully, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Stetson was able to pull it off, but what if, like, what if we didn't bring Stetson back from the JUCO ranks? Are we sitting here right now as the two-time defending national champion? I would say no. I would certainly lean probably not. And let's stick on the Stetson Bennett theme here for a second. What if Jake Fromm would have returned for his senior season in 2020? We know 2019 was not great for Jake. It was by far the worst season of his career. In retrospect, to me, from where I'm sitting, it's pretty clear that he probably should have come back. And I don't know, Jake. I don't know, you know, where he is in his thought process with how that went down. But I think there's probably a good chance that if he had to do all over again, he might have made a different decision. Maybe he would have come back. Knowing what he knows now, like knowing how his NFL career ultimately worked out. You don't know that at the time, but, you know, in retrospect, Probably should have come back. But what if he What if he didn't leave? What if he stayed in 2020, right? I know a lot of you have very strong feelings about Jake Fromm, and a lot of you have strong feelings towards the, the negative side of things when it comes to Jake Fromm. I think a lot of people 
are skewed in how they remember Jake based on two things. Number one, how his career ended in 2019, which again was by far his worst worst year at Georgia Bulldog. And the number two, the fields from debate, right? How that went down. There are a lot of Georgia fans out there that remember Jake from very unfavorably because of those two things. And I think that's unfair. I really do. I think it's a lot of misplaced frustration. If you want to be frustrated with the coaching staff for starting from over Justin Fields in 2018, take that out on the coaching staff. Don't take that out on Jake Fromm. All Jake Fromm went out and did is play his heart out for for the University of Georgia for you guys to try to win football games. And you know what? The dude won a hell of a lot of them. And I don't really want to rehash the whole thing, but you know, just just to throw this out there, in 2018, by the way, let's not forget, let's not go with this revisionist history. Jay Fromm was a top five quarterback in America in 2018. Go look at the numbers, guys. I know a lot of people want to point the LSU game and say, oh my God, what a joke, what a disaster. Look at the season in totality. That dude was awesome for us in 2018. Our defense was not great, guys. Our defense was the problem in 2018. It was not what we have now. It was not what we had in 2021. Our offense was the elite unit in 2018. And a big part of that was Jake Fromm. You can argue that Justin Fields would have been better. Maybe, possibly, he could have. We don't know. What we do know is that Fromm was awesome for us in 2018. I know the LSU game. I get that. I was there, guys. Trust me. I know that. But you know what? All quarterbacks have tough games. You guys see uh, C.J. Stroud's numbers last year against Northwestern? I know those numbers. I remember them because I was just watching a game in my offseason film study. I was watching the Alabama-LSU game. That happened the same week that C.J. Stroud and Ohio State were playing Northwestern. And so they kept flashing the score up on the screen. So I've seen it a lot recently over the past couple of days. C.J. Stroud was 10 of 26 for 76 yards, zero touchdowns, zero picks in that game, guys, against Northwestern. Now, I know the weather was a factor. You know, it was windy, all that kind of stuff. He was terrible, was not good in that football game. Does that mean that C.J. Stroud wasn't good for Ohio State last year? Of course not. I mean, he wasn't good in that game. Same thing with Jake Fromm. Jake Fromm was bad against LSU in 2018. The rest of the season, the dude was awesome for us. And if he would have come back in 2020, I think things would have been very different than how they were in 2019. Let's go back and look at 2019, right? What happened to Jake Fromm? What happened to Jake Fromm, who was a dude that had the third highest QBR among all quarterbacks in the country in 2018. Yes, even higher than pretty boy Trevor Lawrence. How did he fall down so much in 2019? Well, it's pretty simple, guys. If you look at it objectively and you take your emotions and your feelings about Justin Fields out of it, there's two things. We had a ton of injuries at receiver and we had a new offense coordinator in James Cole. He was an abject disaster. And Fromm got killed for it for things that were largely outside of his control. Now, did he miss some throws down the field at times in 2019? Yeah, absolutely. He missed some throws that he made in 2017 and 2018. I think his confidence got shook a little bit. When you got a play call like James Cole you're dealing with who had really doesn't have any clue what he's doing, and you have a bunch of young guys and experienced guys that you're trying to throw passes to that aren't really helping you out. Lawrence Cager was great when he was healthy, but Cager was, was hurt for half the season. We had George Pickens. Pickens was a freshman, guys. Pickens was really talented. George was very, very unfinished back then, guys. He was a very unpolished product. Um, he had a very limited route tree. Now, he was very good at what he what he was able to do, but there we were limited on what we could run at times with George out there. So bash from all you want. like That's your prerogative. Do as you wish. But I don't think that was Jake Fromm. We had two seasons of a sample size saying, this is who this guy is. He's really good. Good enough as a true freshman to get us to the national championship game. And good enough in 2018 to kind of carry a, a above average defense, but still not a, not a dominant defense, not the kind of defense that we that we have now 
And he was awesome in 2018. 2019, yes, we had that sample size where he wasn't great. But I still lean towards those first years and say, we saw what that guy could do when he had help at receiver. We had a competent coordinator. Now, we know Jim Cheney was like the be-all, end-all coordinator, but he was certainly better than James Coley was, right? Like, we know this. What could Jake Fromm have done with Todd Munkin? Let's not forget 2020, guys. Remember all those games where we saw dudes just running wide open out there in space, Munkin dialing things up, scheming people open, and we just couldn't consistently hit them? Fromm is going to hit most of those throws, guys. I think Jake Fromm, with a guy like Todd Munkin, offensive coordinator, would have absolutely lit it up in 2020. Now, I had this discussion with some people on social media, and like, I, I, some people, you know, they, they disagree with me, and that's fine. It's totally fine. But the, some of the pushback I got was, well, Fromm is never as mobile as Stetson. And that's very true. Absolutely is true. And Stetson's mobility was certainly a big benefit to us in both 21 and 2022. But was his mobility the difference maker in a ton of games in, in 2020? It, it simply wasn't. And here's the thing about Stetson. I love the guy. You know, guys, that I defended this guy when people were calling me crazy. I was swinging my sword for this guy out there on social media, on the mean streets of Twitter, all last offseason. People bashing me, calling me insane, telling me I don't know what I'm talking about, calling me biased, calling me a homer. And I sat there and I took it. Now, I, I gave some of it back too, but I took it because I believed it, man. I truly believed in the guy based off what I saw in 2021, especially how he ended the season responded from that the lost Alabama in the SEC Championship game. But let's also not make this out to be something that it wasn't. The Stetson that we saw in 2021, and especially the Stetson we saw in 2022, in no way, shape, or form was the Stetson Bennett that we saw in 2020. And that is a that is a compliment to Stetson Bennett himself for continuing to work and improving himself and getting better and better and better as time went on to the point where he was the greatest quarterback in Georgia history. Love the guy. And he's he's amazing. But he wasn't that guy in 2020. He was he was competent. He helped us come back and win that Arkansas game, which I'll forever love him for that. I don't know if we'd ever live that game down. He helped us win that game, helped us beat Auburn, helped us beat Tennessee. But you know, he struggled in some games. Remember the Kentucky game? Yeah, I was there during COVID. Yeah, we, what we throw the ball? Like, it felt like we threw the ball like seven times a game. I know it's a few more than that, but not much more, right? And the four game started out really well, um, but then he obviously gets injured. But it would have been interesting to see how that game works out if he doesn't get hurt. Now we were just a mash unit on defense in that game, and we just had a tough time stopping them. Remember the wheel routes? Couldn't stop that. Alabama, he was terrible, man. Like he was bad against Alabama, like in Tuscaloosa. We know that. So Stetson was solid for us in 2020. He was not elite, nowhere near it. From, however, I think if he's our quarterback in 2020, I think things are a lot different, man. Like, we're still going to have the injuries on defense. Maybe we still lose the floor because we just really couldn't stop them. But maybe we also could have hung with them. Maybe we could have scored with them. Because from, I really, truly believe this, guys. Now, I say this, I, I know, I admit, former president of the Jake Fromm fan club, I guess once the president of the Jake Fromm fan club, always the president of the Jake, Jake Fromm fan club. But I really do believe that Fromm matched up with Todd Munkin in our offense would have lit it up. I really believe that. And let's say that did happen. Even if he doesn't light up, if he comes back, he's going to be our starter, right? If he comes back, he's going to be our starter in 2020. So how would that have changed things? We probably wouldn't have gone out and gotten Jamie Newman. You, know, you remember that guy? Yeah, I know. Who? Who's this guy? Yeah, Jamie Newman probably wouldn't have gone out and get him. Wouldn't have to deal with that saga. But I don't think Stetson Bennett would have started a game in 2020. I really don't think that he would have, you know, barring any injury to Fromm. If Fromm would have stayed healthy, I think he would have played the entire 2020 season. He would have been our quarterback. And I don't think Stetson would have ever had the opportunity to come off the bench in relief of him. You know, like if Fromm starts Arkansas game, 
we're not going to be struggling in the first half the way that we were with Dwan Mathis, a quarterback. We wouldn't have had Stetson to come off the bench to save the day. And if Stetson never gets a chance to play in 2020, which again, I don't think that he would have. I think the odds would say he wouldn't have. Would he have been the guy to go in in 2021 when JT went down early in the season with the, with the lat issues? I would say probably not. It probably would have been Carson Beck. Let's, let's not forget, guys. Kirby openly said that Carson Beck was our number two quarterback early in the season. He openly said, yeah, this guy is our backup quarterback. But when JT went down and we had to put somebody else in there, we bypassed Carson Beck and threw Stetson in there. Why did we do that? Why did we do that? We did that because Kirby Smart knew what kind of defense that we had and wanted to put somebody out there on the field that he had at least had faith wouldn't lose the game for us. And the reason he had faith in Stetson that he wouldn't lose the game for us is because he saw that in 2020. If he hadn't seen Stetson in those moments starting games against Auburn, against Tennessee, against Florida, against Alabama, against Kentucky, if he hadn't seen him do those things in those games, would he have bypassed Carson Beck? I don't think he would have. Why why would he have? He would have had no reason to. Guys, we know how many different ways the coaches tried to keep Stetson Bennett from having that starting quarterback job in 2021. We know how many ways they did that. Our coaching staff was very open about it. Stetson himself has been very open about it. And the only reason that they gave him that opportunity was because, again, Kirby Smart wanted to go with the safest option there. He thought it would just be for a game or two. Just make sure we don't do anything stupid to lose a game with this defense that we have. We don't want to put a young guy in Carson Beck in there who might make some dumb mistakes and cost us a game. And that's why I went Stetson. But he would not have known Stetson was that safe option if he hadn't seen him in 2020. And with Jake Fromm, I don't think he gets a chance to see Stetson in game action like that. So think about that. Do we win the national championship in 2021 without Stetson Bennett in there? Do we win it in 2022? Maybe, again, as we said earlier, maybe possibly. We don't know that for sure. What happens in 2020? Do we make the playoff in 2020? Do we somehow beat Alabama? Let's not forget, guys. Even with Stetson Bennett, we were up at halftime against Alabama, and he played really, really, really poorly in the second half, and we ended up losing that game. Does a fourth-year starting quarterback in Jake Fromm play a better game in Tuscaloosa than Stetson Bennett did? Do we win that game? Do we beat Florida? Are we able to keep pace with them more offensively? Do we find a way to win the SEC championship game? Do we find a way to get the college football playoff? Imagine what that would have been, guys. Jake Fromm and Justin Fields. National Championship game 2020. Oh my God, an all-time storyline that would have been. And maybe it wouldn't have happened, but I also think it's, it's not insane to say that it could have happened if Jake would have come back. So I think that's a massive, massive what-if in very recent Georgia football history. All right, guys, I think i got time for one more. Man, this has gone a little bit longer than I thought. So we were, we're definitely going to have to make this a two-parter. Uh, oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just got a text, just got a text here. Okay, breaking news here on the Glory UGA podcast. I guess it probably won't be breaking news when you listen to this, but right now it's breaking news. Just got a text here. So we just got a new commitment, all right? Quintavious Johnson out of Mays High School. All right, Quintavious Johnson. I actually just watched his tape last week. And hold on, let me text back real quick, see if I can get a little more info on this from this guy. Hold on one second. Uh... Okay, all right, so Contavious Johnson. Yeah, so just watched his tape last week. This guy has been showing up on my radar a little bit recently. Been trying, I got a whole long list of guys to go watch on Huddle, guys. So I got to him, and um, so he's a, I forget exactly where he's ranked. Not very highly. He's a three-star prospect. I watched his tape last week, and I was like, it's one of those things like, okay, why is he like in the three, four, five hundreds, depending on what service you're looking at? Like, why is he unranked in some of these services? Why is he only a three-star? Because he's a guy that has 
a lot of athleticism. He's got a lot of physical tools. Now, I will say, you know, he's got a ways to go in, in, in some ways in terms of like polishing his game and learning how to actually play the position. But he's a defensive lineman. He's really an edge player. That's what I see him as. That's what he does best at the high school level. Sometimes they move him inside a little bit, but he's like... I mean, he's listed like 255. He does not look 255. He's tall, long, and lanky. He's like 6'4", 6'5". I don't know. I mean, he's probably closer to like 245-ish to me, maybe. I don't think he's 255. But he's he's an edge player, in my opinion. Like, he's a jack-type linebacker. But I do think he's actually pretty good staying the edge. Got a lot of athleticism, very long. I think he has a lot of potential as a pass rusher. He's not very advanced in his pass rush moves. I think he does a much better job right now actually setting the edge against the run than rushing the passer which is it's usually kind of flip-flop there normally. Usually guys at high school level are much better rushing the passer and they're not great technique-wise setting the edge against the run. I think he's better against the run. He has a really good job controlling blockers with his hands, getting his hands on them, extending out against them. He's got a good punch. Uh, he's long, so he's got the, the reach there to get his hands on the blockers before they get their hands on him. I think this guy's got a really high upside. I don't, you know, Based off what I've seen from him, you know, his, his junior tape, I don't know if he's a guy that's going to make an instant impact, but give him a year or two. I think he'd be a really, really good player. All right, and just got another text back here. So, uh, all right, here's what I got for you guys. So, uh, actually, apparently he worked out for the staff today here in Athens, and um, we liked what we saw. So, he already had an off route, but we gave him the green light to commit if he wanted to. That's how these things work, guys. Like, we throw a lot of offers out. Not every offer is committable, which I know is it's there's some gray area there. But um, our coaches have more and more grown insistent on some of these guys especially these marginal guys that we're not sure on working out in front of us and that's apparently what happened today we like what we saw gave him the green light he went ahead and committed and i will say this guys i know it's hard sometimes you get excited about a three-star guy that that's not one of these you know big time high profile recruits our staff has an extraordinarily high hit rate in recent years on guys that they offer when they actually work out for our staff here in person in Athens. And that's exactly what happened here. At least that's the word I'm getting right now. And let me see. I'm asking about the weight real quick. So what did he weigh in at? Okay, let's see what comes after. Yeah, so I, I mean, he's listed at 255. I'm pulling up his his 247 profile here. Yeah, he's listed at 255. I don't know, man. He didn't look 255 on tape to me. We'll see. I'm sure they took his measurements in Athens. All right, just got it back here. Yep, 240, 240. So he weighed in. He's 6'5", 240. That's, that, that sounds about right to me based on what I saw on tape. So that's an edge rusher, guys. I mean, he's listed as a defensive lineman on 247. Like, I mean, that's he, he's not an interior guy. That's for sure. He's not even a five-tick guy. He is an edge player. So cool. There we go. Got another one there. So um, I know some of you guys are asking, hey, when are we getting our next Camilla? When are we going to get some momentum? And I, I know that three stars don't exactly move the needle for a lot of you guys, but I think he's a good player. I think he's a guy that a couple years down the road, we're going to look back and say, oh, yeah, like, thank God we took this guy. He's got a really, really high upside, a lot of athleticism. But anyway, all right, let's get to the last of our what-ifs in Georgia history for today. We'll definitely come back and do this next week. If, if you guys want me to, let me know, guys. If you like this segment, if so, we'll, we'll try to work it in at least one more time, maybe another time, depending on how many we're able to get through next week, if you want me to. Uh, but let's do one more today. All right, let's do this one. I got a whole list. Let's switch. Okay, yeah, let's do this one. What if... What if Kirby Smart had been hired by Auburn in 2012? He interviewed, guys. Auburn interviewed Kirby Smart, and they hired Gus Malzahn instead. Man, talk about rewriting SEC history. Help, talk about rewriting college football history. What would have happened there if Kirby Smart takes the Auburn job and he gets that thing humming, which I'm almost certain he would have because it's Kirby freaking smart. The dude's just a monster. If he would have gotten that thing humming, 
Does he leave Auburn to come to Georgia if we ultimately move on from Mark Rick? Hell, do we even move on from Mark Rick in 2015 without knowing for sure that we would have gotten Kirby Smart? And with Kirby as the coach at Auburn giving us that heads up, like, hey, yeah, guys, if you if you offer me the job, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to Georgia. Maybe possibly. It, it's certainly possible, but maybe not. I don't know. And if we don't hire Kirby, who do we hire? When we move on from Rick. But again, like, do we even move on from Rick at that point? A big part of the urgency in us moving on from Rick in the first place in 2015 was the knowledge that Kirby Smart was available and also the fear that he might actually take a job at South Carolina, which is one of our division rivals, and take himself off the market if we waited any longer to move on from Rick, if we had any more patience with Rick. So we went ahead and pulled the plug there and hired Kirby while we could. But if Kirby's not open and available like that, do we move on from Rick? Maybe. Like maybe you just move on and you try to pry Kirby away from Auburn, possibly. But you never know. It's just one of those weird things. And if Kirby doesn't ultimately end up coming to Athens, do we win back-to-back national titles? Almost certainly not. Are we still just, just the same old Georgia where we're consistently good but never really fully elite? I shudder at the thought of that. But that's just another one of those big what-ifs. Like, what if Auburn wasn't absolutely moronic and actually hire Kirby Smart. How many national titles would they have at this point? Ugh. Can you imagine, guys, seeing Kirby Smart in that nasty-ass orange and navy? In that nothing-nowhere town of Auburn? Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. But all right, guys, uh, that's all I got for you today. I have a, actually have a bunch more of these what-ifs, but if I keep rolling today, I might go on for three or four hours. So we're just going to save them. Why, why not? Like, we can save them. No rush here. We can do a couple more next week, and if we need to, if you guys are still into it, let me know, and we can do maybe even a couple more next week. And keep them coming, guys. There's probably a lot out there that I haven't even thought of yet, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. We've got some good feedback on social media already, but there's probably more out there, so let us know. But that's all I got for you today, guys. I'm out of here. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. I don't know what it's going to be doing around the rest of the state. I know here in Athens it's supposed to be raining all weekend. kind of sucks. It's Athfest weekend, which I've never really been that into. I'm not into that kind of music, so it's not that big of a deal for me. But I hate it for the people who are into it. It kind of sucks. It's going to be really wet, nasty, rainy. But even if it's wet, nasty, and rainy wherever you are this weekend, I hope you have a great weekend. Of course, I will be back next week with some more Georgia football talk for you guys. So come on back. But I am your host, Tyler. And as always, go dogs.